So welcome to another show. Uh, we've got Rocco back on today, who uh, we'll previously discuss the Hermetic Principles, um, but he's a very interesting man, very intellectual, so I thought we'd get him back on to get his insights on a number of other areas. So welcome back again, Rocco. Thank you very much, young man. It's good to be back. I listened back to our episode as well, <clears throat> and I must say to your listeners, the audio quality was a bit shocking, and I only discovered later we've got the same sound equipment but unlike you, I've got a um, an eighteen month year old that that came by and was fiddling with the the, <laughs> the audio gain at the back of the mic, so I don't know how much they would have heard. Um, but yeah, hopefully this one goes better. But it's like we we discussed last time, actually, isn't it? It's that kids are so inquisitive; we we tend to lose that as we get older. So maybe it's it's a good there's a positive there in some respects. She's a uh, she's a right handful. Oh, she's two years older than she she's just shy of two years so in a good few months she'll be two years old but um the, the thing is she like literally changes her personality it develops week on week it's actually very interesting um watching reason and consciousness arrive incrementally um and also how um innate regression is we all think regression is somehow a kind of problem that means something is wrong and we we overlook the fact that it's such a necessary part of progress um because you know the one day she just came out the blocks and she was almost having full-on conversation with us and stringing sentences together and we thought oh well this is it you know the, the, the corners turned and the next day she was off again and you, you can sit and overthink it and you can worry it and you can try to join the dots and try to figure out what was going on. And it honestly just doesn't matter because she's kind of just ticking along on her own little, um, you know, her own little journey. And even when you can't see visible progress, there's obviously tons going on because she just comes out with stuff all the time that surprises us. And she's uh, smart as a whip, um, but it, one thing it checks is our expectations. Like we've got we've got very fixed kind of um, adult centric expectations about progress, and uh, she just kind of does her own thing. Yeah, but definitely inquisitive, like and inquisitive about boundaries and about um, the strangest things, like 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 making loud noises or, or if you say don't touch something, she's not touching it to be naughty. She's touching it because What's this all about now? What, why, why is this a, a no-fly zone? So every, every washing machine, dishwasher, everything in reach gets molested and <laughs> prodded and <laughs> interrupted mid-cycle. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's exhausting but exhilarating at the same time. It is, it is the case, though, as, as humans, if we say don't do something we are then opened up to the possibility of that thing existing. So sometimes when we say don't do something, it's 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 basically saying to the kid or to an individual, go and do that thing instead of trying yeah. to divert their attention yeah. elsewhere. That's right. It's like, remember when Monty Python came out with Life of Brian? The biggest foolish mistake the conservatives and the church did was try to ban it. Because as soon as you ban it, it becomes like, like shit to a fly. It's just like, I can't keep away. I must, I must see what was the cause of all the fuss. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think that is universal in human. It talks about development with you, with your daughter. 
and the essentially um, the improvement being lost over over time. So you thought that she turned a corner and she went back, and that's the case of, of human the human uh, situation as well. So as far as adults go, if we understand that we need to to fail and that we're going to go through storms that will allow us to come out stronger. Why are we so scared to go through those things? Um, I think we we obviously lack the perspective. There's a part of our experience, I believe, and I think this has got to do with something we may have touched on last time, the, the left brain and the right brain experience. Even though we see ourselves as a single contiguous whole self, we're actually not. We're actually... <clears throat> multiple in our identities and half of the the paradox of being a human is this impossible job of trying to reconcile um, these these opposites often without realizing that they exist in the first place and <clears throat> excuse me one of the things about the left brain is it's not sort of ambient aware of the context or the tone of things that are happening or of a a wider purview. It's very myopically um, concerned and any blanks in that context that exist, it'll happily fill with narrative. That's the nature of our left brain. And I think the some of the some of the the baggage that comes along for the ride inadvertently with the way that we've styled our modern society and our ways of engaging we'll talk about that in a second um i think that they they lean heavily on that left brain thinking it's very task orientated very um self-preoccupied um very captured by ideological narrative um, that always positions the self in context with other and vice versa. <clears throat> and I think as a byproduct of that, we, we, we lose the, the perspective of a, of a wider purview of a longer chain of cause and effect of, I mean, if you and I sit here now, we can reflect and go, you know, actually a lot of the difficult things that happened to me, um, I wouldn't necessarily like to repeat them, but I have to admit that they were hugely instrumental in crafting the kind of person that I am today. So I'm able to to kind of reason it out and say that all of my growth or all of you know the challenges that came my way, there there there's a utility in them in terms of of how they cut the chafe away or um, they they strip away the unnecessary so that you know this person that I'm slowly becoming can emerge. And I think the example that I give is if you take a seed that falls from a tree to to belong to a whole, you know there's part of that seed, this is all archetypal of course. there's part of that seed's identity that believes it's the crown, the fruit of all the labors of that entire tree. And it's, it's celebrated and appreciated for what it is. And it falls away. And it drops on the ground, almost in a form of neglect. And this is something we each experience individually, psychologically. <clears throat> and the first act of separation for us is a form of abandonment, a form of um, realizing that we're an individual self, vulnerable, 
um, excluded from the whole, not some, and we lose sight of the bigger picture and the plan that's in store for us. And let's say that's a, um, a kernel of wheat that falls into the ground and falls underneath the soil and is lost and forgotten from its perspective. And then the first act of the human heart or of a seed is breaking open, actually. Something that's whole and secure and safe. Its last little safety is its husk, its shell. And it breaks open. And it's got, it's got two options, really. The one option is make a break for the surface. And any plant that does that gets washed away in the first wind and rain. The alternative is it actually has to do the counterintuitive thing and put a little root down. It has to stabilize itself. It has to belong to that environment below the surface before it can belong to the upper experience. <clears throat> so let's say that a wheat plant does that. And it extends a small taproot down and it, it breaks the surface. And, it, and you know, it's got this dual experience of anchoring below the surface and then growing up into the, into the light and the sunlight. And of course, these are metaphors as well. And imagine this, this wheat plant growing next to its peers in the sun and the rain and the wind, and it's growing tall and strong. And right at the, at the top of the stalk is a sheaf of, of wheat. And after all the winds and all the rains that it endures, at the end of this whole long season, at the crowning glory of its achievement, it gets cut down. Now, from the first person perspective, it's, it's the end. But we forget that when we dropped off the tree, that was the, oh my God, this is the end. Then when the seed broke open, it was, oh my God, this is the end. But all of these endings were actually just beginnings. And then the wheat is harvested, cut down in its prime, in its prime. And it's thrown in a warehouse just to lay there, to dry out. And it gets dried and desiccated in a pile of a, a thousand others just like it. And it's no longer special. And just when it thinks the torment is over and it becomes used to its situation, the, the wheat gets taken up and it gets threshed so that the chaff can come off so you can get the kernel out. And that threshing must feel like the end. And then when the kernel is exposed, then it suddenly realizes, okay, like all, the, all that was cut off me was non-essential. It was not me. And then it starts getting ground up into flour and it thinks, oh my God, this is the end. And then it gets kneaded and then baked into bread and put in the oven and thinks, oh my God, this is the end. And the point that I'm trying to make is that at every step along the way, there is an invitation of alarm if, you, if your perspective is narrow enough to say something terrible and untoward is happening. This surely must be the end without realizing that the entire purpose of planting the wheat in the very first place was precisely to grind it into flour and turn it into bread. And we don't even have any perspective of our long-term purpose or our long-term sense of meaning. And yet we catch these small individual moments. And if we don't have enough discernment, we convince ourselves that there is in fact no difference between fear and danger, between pain and injury, between discomfort and loss. And very simply, from an evolutionary biology perspective, we were trained, ingrained, um, to avoid pain just in case it's indicative of injury, avoid fear just in case it's indicative of actual danger, and avoid discomfort just in case it's indicative of actual loss in the interests of surviving as a species. And I think 
it's a long answer, but I think that's the reason why. But if we know that, as, as you alluded to earlier, that when we go through these situations, we come out stronger or with a different perspective, should we not encourage areas of adversity or areas of struggle or storms that... Yeah, I think we absolutely should, philosophically. The problem is convincing people with enough sense of reason to take that view. And when you're the one struggling and suffering and you can't trust the voice coming at you, you have to... It's actually sane um, to perceive something or someone as um, injury or danger or loss because that's that's a surer pathway to survival there was a man called uh daniel kahneman he's a psychologist and he won a nobel prize for um, economics i believe and the reason for that was he applied his discovery to the realm of economics because it made the clearest showcase but what his point was in summary was that human beings and our brains do not reach for truth we reach for confirmation and we're not evolved to sit and parse details or a situation out critically because evolutionary perspective that would have been counterintuitive for survival we're we're primed to reach very very quickly for likely answers and the heuristic is it's better to be slightly wrong and alive than to be perfectly right and dead so I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm reading this book at the moment, and it's got this beautiful metaphor. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. I don't know why I'd never thought of it before. The, the example is that if you have a thousand-page book, basically the history of humanity would be 250 uh, years to a page. That's the math. And on that basis, everything that's interesting about the human race if you had gone to page 600 and page 700, there would be no difference. But you get to our neck of the woods, and there is an enormous difference between the first paragraph on page 999 versus the second paragraph. The, if you teleported somebody from page 600 to page 700, they'd have to adjust to some small cultural differences in some language, but fundamentally their paradigm of technology and how norms worked and how societies worked would have been completely unchanged. And for us, everything of any degree of remarkableness or, or amazement, it's literally all happened from page 999 onwards. Um, so there's this incredibly steep exponential curve of change that's happened to us. And what we're dealing with is 998 pages of momentum of everything being a certain way and all of our apparatus for thinking and reasoning and calculating and processing is all based on the context of a very, very long past. We've lost audio, Summer. You're on mute. Do you, do you feel that on that basis we are developing too fast at this stage of, of page 999. Yeah. So we're going from uh, the chat GBT, the technology yeah, yeah, exactly. we're building, all of this sort of stuff yeah. that is going to <clears throat> actually lose a lot of our fundamental values and yeah. all that. 
I, I do believe that, and and it's 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 it, it bears a bit of qualification that statement because <clears throat> there is a conservative viewpoint that would say this is all happening too fast. We just need to slow down. So that's not my viewpoint. I'm not suggesting we need to stop progress. I'm suggesting that progress being at the rate that it is, is not sustainable um, without implicit risk if there isn't also a commensurate um, increase in wisdom, prudence, diligence, discernment that goes alongside with that. And the fact that, let's, let's say there are two metrics that matter that need to live alongside each other, if the one outstrips the other, if your prudence and your wisdom outstrip your technology, you're fine. If your technology and your capability of harming yourself or others or making irreparable damage to the environment that you're reliant on outstrips your degree of self-awareness and prudence and wisdom, then you've got a significant problem. And I think this is the significant problem that we're facing at the moment. So it's not that it's happening too fast. It's happening predictably as it was always going to happen given the outcome of the population density human nature, our, um, our propensity to create, you know, shared ideologies and predictive models and, and specialization. And for that right comes exponential technological advancement. And if your, if your modem or, or medium or your heuristics of self-management don't keep pace with that, then you get what we have now. So for every escalation in technology, do you feel that's having a, an inverse relationship on our psych psychological well-being? Um, or do you think there's no yeah, either Either directly or indirectly, because, yeah, like... The more capability you have of fucking something up or breaking something that you're unaware of, the more power you wield over your environment, um, it stands to reason that the more awareness you need of the risk that you present or it presents to you. And if your mindset or your purview or your paradigm is too simplistic, the, the example I give, which is very crude, which is, Imagine you had a bunch of tactical nuclear devices with, um, with trigger devices that work like the, the back of a ballpoint pen and you gave them to chimpanzees. They would annihilate themselves and every other species within a thousand kilometer radius, not because of any ill intent, just because they enjoy clicking. And, you know, the, the vast delta between um, what we're capable of doing versus the awareness of the consequences of what we're doing, both in terms of scale or time or persistence is, I mean, they're not even on the same page at the moment at all. So I don't think that the technology always has a direct psychological consequence, but I think some of the things we're doing certainly do. Like, for example, when there was suddenly the scale of weaponry, like um, nuclear armaments, that could wipe out the entire human species. That has to have an existential effect on people's psychology. It has to. How we manage to edit that concern out and stop worrying about it, even though the nuclear armaments grew, they didn't shrink, 
um, and the political climate got more tense, it didn't become more easy. That's another affectation of, of human psychology. But if you take something like social media, certainly, then I think, yeah, fucking absolutely, it's got a profound and um, challenging effect on an unmoderated, unmanaged human psyche. The, the problem is we're trying to engage meaningfully at scale and we can't track all the data and we can, we're not aware of how aroused or agitated we are by certain engagements or bits of information or quality of engagement. And so the, the quality of our input and our experience that we glean from those mediums it's not like we're choosing how we behave when we're captured by them. We're helplessly behaving in a certain way, completely unaware. Um, and unaware that we're unaware. That, that same author I told you about, Danny Kahneman, he's got a, an amazing quote. He goes, not only are we blind to the obvious, we are blind to our blindness. We don't know that we don't know. And anyone, this is the thing, right? This is it. If, if, if you are far left of center or far right of center, let's not call it left and right. Let's call it infrared and ultraviolet. <clears throat> and let's say the middle of the, of the cone was where the clear light spectrum was. The way that spectrums and polarities work in physics means that if you are extremely off to the one end of the spectrum, even if I'm in the middle, relatively, from your ultraviolet perspective, even my clear white light will seem commensurately infrared and vice versa. You don't have to be diametrically opposed to somebody else. If they are backed into an ideological corner and their perspective is biased in one extreme sense, even if you come with a perfectly centrist, perfectly neutral perspective, it will still be completely, wholly perceived as diametrically opposed because of how extreme their distortion is. That's, that's the problem. That's a great metaphor, actually, that yeah. depending on where you are on the spectrum, your perspective... Of anything. Yeah, just, uh, exactly. It's determined by how yeah. you do things. But then coming back then to the technological side of things, I'm on a time spectrum, aren't I, that's further back than some of the kids today. And I, even I can see the change that's happened in terms of mobile phones, social media, iPads, rather than going out to play and the school system changing. And obviously you're older than I am. What what have you seen that maybe you feel that I haven't seen that gives you a better perspective it's, in a longer period of time? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just to a different degree. And the way I'll invite you into the perspective is to ask you to look back um, to 1990 how old were you in 1990 one <laughs> all right so how old were you in the year 2000 you would have been 11 years old yeah, 11 years old yeah okay so i mean i was already um technically an adult but i wasn't psychologically an adult yet but the point is whatever you encountered at that time whatever you, you saw on the television what movies were on whatever music you were listening to you weren't looking at that from a perspective of going, oh my God, would you listen to this? This is incredible. That was just it. There was nothing else. The quality of food, the smell of the air, the, you know, when I was a kid, 
if you took an apple from the market, any fucking apple, and you put it in your clothing drawer, and you came home from school that afternoon, your entire wardrobe would smell like an apple orchard. Okay, you can put 50 apples in your cupboard now and it won't smell of fucking anything. Why? Because the apples are, are genetically modified. Yeah, we've lost now. something. And we've lost something that, A, no one seems to notice or remember or care about. I just remember this one obscure thing. Now, how many obscure things used to have a different color to it? You know, you know what synesthesia is, right? That's when you see colors from smells and you you hear colors. I mean, it's, it's when you interpret one sense <clears throat> almost with the valence of another, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, something about my conscious experience left the world slowly and never came back. There was a time when adults used to watch the same television programs, the same channels, and they would get together at the coffee machine or the gas station or the the playground at school, whatever it was. And they would say, Oh my God, do you remember what happened in the episode? This guy did this. And then everyone saw the same thing. They were speaking about the same thing. There was a movie came out said Elmo's fire. Everybody was listening to the soundtrack. Everybody was into the main actors. Everybody knew what the main story was. The movie Highlander came out, whatever it was, there was this small channel, which everyone could subscribe to. And they had shared predictive models and shared experiences about these things. And whatever cultural updates we were getting from our social, from our, our media and our pop culture, we were getting similar ones at a similar time. Yeah. Now, everyone's watching their own, listening to their own audible audiobooks, listening to their own podcasts, not radio stations anymore, watching their, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying this is what we've got watching their own net, you know, Netflix, Hulu, whatever, whatever the fucking streaming service is, there is no shared overlap anymore. And so not only are these rare experiences leaving the world that we can't quite put our fingers on, like the smell of apples, these other things that we're encountering, we don't have shared frames of reference for. And the thing is, when you were an 11 year old lad, whatever you were encountering in terms of whatever was the norm, so you probably had a Sony Walkman or some shit, right? Used to play CDs off of that yeah. was normal then. Yeah. And then there was those MIDI disc players and then it went to MP3 players. And there was a kid that came five years after you that the only thing they'd ever known was an MP3 player. They'd never seen a VHS cassette in their fucking life. And all I'm suggesting is, your psychology is imprinted, your conscious awareness determines as normal, whatever you first encounter and describes your world. And that's how you inform your predictive models. Now, some of those things have analogies to the things that we had or the things that are coming, but some of them don't. And something consequential that we can't quite put our fingers on, we don't know what's lost before it's way too late is leaving year on year. And we don't, we're not making any of these technological advancements discerningly, carefully, thoughtfully, we're just running towards like whipping the horses towards this cliff. 
of the, of the emerging moment. And I don't even know what it is that we're losing in that exchange. But you have to, you have to think to yourself that it can't be nothing. It's got to be something. So just two things. One, the the Apple point brought back back a memory from for me that when we, when the kids used to play in the playground and we used to play football or any other games and pe- and we all used to leave our jumpers in the corner, we used to smell the jumpers to see whose was whose. Like, oh, that's yours. How did you know from the smell? It's just that's what I mean because we used to play and everyone had the same school shirt. But you can smell, people have smells, don't they? It's like... Yeah, but uh, it's so funny that you were aware of that, yeah. Yeah, it's mental. It only came, yeah, it really came back when you said the smell thing. And I thought, oh, yeah, we used to do that with... Because um, you've, you've got a heightened sense of smell, haven't you? Um, when, when you can And also hiding. things just seemed organically to have stronger scent. And I don't think it's... You know, obviously something psychologically gets lost in that trade-off. Um... I'm not saying it's like crucially important and, and, you know, we should, you know, clutch onto pillows made of locks of our hair and, and wish for the, the past to return. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that is one tiny, tiny example of something that seems to be receding without us noticing that it's going. And not everything that we want to point out and call progress, I think, is actually better. Okay. And I'm, I'm not against progress. I'm against unconscious barreling towards um, iteration of technology without something that resembles wisdom informing that vector that we're moving in. Okay, so let's push back on that and and by using your own wheat example that you come to every stage and think that this is the end and this is the, the period of death, but it's the beginning could yeah. we look at it in that in that respect and say yes we're going through this period of of losing s- s- stuff that we aren't even aware of what that is until it's it's lost we may be just moving into a period that is that new beginning and something that we can't appreciate at this point yeah sure we're not part of that yeah that except this right this gets down to right back into mystical slash spiritual territory, you've now got to ask yourself, what do you believe fundamentally about the world? Do you believe that there's some sort of guiding principle or guiding hand that makes sure that every step towards progress is actually, you've gone. Ivan has disappeared. Let's try. There we go. And he's back. Um, I don't know what we lost there. I said, your question was, you know, isn't just whichever way the river is tumbling towards the ocean. I mean, the fact that it used to run in this channel the year before and now it runs here and whatever's lost is lost. And, you know, this is just the way, this is what progress looks like. This is what moving on looks like, right? Something has to be lost for something to be gained. Yeah, I think there's a pragmatism to that to that worldview. But what it really gets down to, what it what it actually opens up is this question around what is the hand that's guiding the movement towards? And how do we know for sure that every movement towards is a good step? And we know that it isn't, actually. And so it challenges this unasked question that's actually worth asking to say, what is the hand that's guiding this direction we're moving towards? 
Is it some sort of sense of universal providence? Is there some sort of principle in the universe that you know self-corrects or self-checks? Maybe, maybe. Um, but I know enough of my own sense of remorse and regret and grief in life that not every single thing that I've lost as I've moved through the world, if I had had my time again, I'm not 100% sure I would make the same choice. And I'm very aware, uniquely as a human being, aware of these little subtleties that slip away while no one was watching. And if I'm aware of a handful, we're 7 billion people on the planet, hitting on 8 now. Are you telling me that there's nothing of value that we accidentally let out the drain when we emptied the bath water out? I, I don't think so. And my heart tells me that, that um, you know, it's not just the cyclic thing like wheat being grown and cut down, even though the human race is exactly that. It's exactly that. I think if we woke up to the, the imminent um, awareness of what was valuable, of what was valuable about our experience, our suffering, our understanding. I think we would take more care as we yeah. stepped forward. You know, when Australia was founded, um, first of all, it was done on the back of a lot of injustice and suffering and um, domination and violating of other people's needs, rights and safeties and freedoms. And the second thing is even even parking all of that, which is a huge degree of human travesty, even parking all of that, just the fucking ignorance that it was done with. So at some point in time, accidentally rats arrived in the ships and the rats became a problem. So then they, they brought European foxes over to manage the rats. Then they became a feral fox problem. And then they, they brought some other pest that came along and fucking devastated the, the sugar cane and the wheat crops. And then they brought the cane toad because the cane toad was a natural predator of these crickets or these locusts. But the cane toad had no natural predator. And every stupid thing that they did to solve the previous problem caused a new ecological disaster. goat problem, a feral fox problem, a feral rabbit problem, a feral camel problem, a feral donkey problem. And every single thing that they've done is just this bumbling farce of a showcase of human ineptitude and shortness of, of perspective. Now, that is one continent that we've tried to turn to our sway. If you look at what has been done in the name of um, religious sanctity in the Middle East, in, uh, in, in the religious uh, melting pot that is Iran, Iraq, Syria, the amount of ancient sites and history that's been lost because some religious fundamentalist thought that these ancient temples or figurines or statues somehow were an affront to the one true God. And they went and defaced them and, 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 and scratched out of all human history, all record of something that stood for 12,000 years. Are you telling me that absolutely everything is, is in some, that we're doing mindlessly, 
is all working out in some glorious favor in our best interest. I don't believe it is. I don't either. And if we don't wake up to that pressing real, I know it was a challenging question. I'm just pushing back on your pushing back. I'm just saying the, 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 the assertion from me is that search your heart and if you can convince yourself as an individual that, you're con that we're sure academically that nothing of meaning is ever going to be lost in our unconscious trundling towards ideological progress, then sure, by all means. But we can't say that and mean it. So it's, it's, it's coming back to your, the point that you made last time um, with regards to why are all teenagers always the same, challenging their parents? Could it not be that we are being pushed down this path to allow us to realise something so that Absolutely. we can evolve from that and develop as individuals because sometimes as we've talked about before to realize something you have to realize the opposite end of the spectrum with the ultraviolet and the infrared as you, as you mentioned and um, but then if we even push back on that saying well actually if we're going to deface all of these things on one side of the scale or continue to evolve technologically like if we look at the calculator for example and i know we don't know this exactly but the pyramids were you probably calculated without the use of any calculator or anything similar. And we now use calculators, which means that we can't do the mental maths that we used to be able to do. So there's a positive mm. and a negative to that. One is the negative is that we can't mentally. Yeah. Equation. I, th I think the that's a false. Is... I think that's a false um, equivalence. And let me explain. So <clears throat> there is the individual and there is the collective. A society is a collective, and if we share a bunch of norms, the society can achieve um, what the individual cannot. And an emergent property becomes apparent where, let me give you an example. If six people had to live on their own, the amount of energy that they would take in prehistoric times or Paleolithic times to gather water, gather food, protect themselves, gather firewood, etc. Versus when you start clubbing that effort together, three people can gather enough firewood for six, two people can gather enough food for six, if they don't have to split their attention and energy and mental bandwidth between multiple tasks. And what happens very quickly, which is an exponential curve, is that collaborating groups can achieve more then the sum of their parts would be able to individually with the same manpower. Now, the false equivalence comes in to say that you're assuming that every single citizen in ancient Egypt could do the necessary calculations. No. There was a hierarchical structure which supported a social order, which supported a few privileged priests or engineers to be able to do nothing other than fuck about with the necessary geometry and mathematics and arithmetic and engineering to dedicate themselves to be able to do those kinds of mathematics. And I guarantee you, if you gave them modern calculating equipment, they wouldn't have thrown it out the window and, and, and give it and cited reasons for superior mental arithmetic as their reason. Trust me, they were fucking sweating to come up with those calculations. The point is they had the freedom to be able to do it based on the, the collective entity which was their society. So I absolutely think, like if you look at something like a calculator or chat GPT, whatever the case, I wrote an article recently, it's called 
how um, to think of AI like shoes. Shoes, we don't think of shoes as transformative technology. But shoes are what allowed us to continue along journeys of exploration and discovery where otherwise the unpassable terrain would have blocked our way. So it extended our range. It, it changed the nature of how we could spend our bandwidth. If you're confused about this, take your shoes off and try a walk through a little bit of bush and you have to painstakingly pick every single step so carefully so you don't cut your foot, so you don't step on something. But you put shoes on and immediately you reclaim 40% of your mental, ba mental bandwidth. Immediately. Immediately. Right. That doesn't mean you can't twist your ankle or you can never walk wrong or the shoe's not going to wear out or it's not going to be too tight or there still can be lots wrong with your shoes. So take that analogy and apply it to ChatGPT. This allows us to cover ground much more quickly than we would have if we had painstakingly picked our way there. I do some web design. I do article writing. I write copy for people. I write intros to podcasts, all that sort of shit. I do those Mojo Dojo courses. Trust me, I've got the six or seven bullet points that I want to put there, but I couldn't be fucking asked to craft that jibber-jabber. There's a, there's a tool that does it effortlessly, effortlessly. Now, the question is, what balance do I strike? Because I'm still providing the context, the prompts, the intelligence, the nuance, the thought. If you strip all that away, people start treating... Instead of like shoes, they treat it like a sedan chair. You know what a sedan chair is? It's when some lazy fucker would sit and four other people would carry them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the one. It means you're being carried passively into your future or passively across a bit of terrain, which means you have no personal experience of what you're doing. You don't have any context of it. You've got no tactile relationship with what's going on. And to, to persist the metaphor of shoes, even if you're on a very tough hike, at the end of the evening when you're going to have your dinner and sit around the campfire, you still take your boots off. And you slip into more comfortable shoes. And there are still some things that you do that are so sacred, you still prefer to do them barefoot, like going to temple or making love or having a bath or whatever the case is. And what I'm suggesting is even if we embrace this technology and treat it like shoes, something that can help us cover ground quickly, that doesn't mean we don't ever want to walk barefoot. It doesn't mean we don't ever want to write our wedding vows ourselves or a birthday card from the heart or a eulogy at somebody who we love that passed away. I mean, we don't want to say, okay, chat GPT, hook me up with a fucking eulogy. Here's a, I mean, there are reasons where even if it can do it well, it's, we still lose something by doing that. Now, that's a, that is a very, very smart way to think of all of this. But isn't it a case of use for us versus abuse? Because, yes, chat GBT uh, is useful in the right hands. But, again, yeah. is that something that is... So, for example, corporations, if they implement chat GBT in such a way that eliminates and makes redundant many jobs and, and many individuals, does that have a negative effect on society overall? Well, I mean, this is now kind of a... It's a very narrow question, which is almost ignorant in of itself. And I'll tell you why, because 
why does corp why do corporations exist? Why do jobs exist? Jobs exist to um automate make serve, them simple. serve the end of the corporation which has created an entity, a social entity, which is trying to do a thing. But whatever the fucking thing is that it's doing, it's 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 operating on the basis of let's collaborate together so that everyone gets some modicum of value out of this. The employees get healthcare and salaries, the but ultimately the selection criteria of any choice always falls to the casualty of what's best for the shareholder. Capitalist corporations are trying to maximize returns for shareholders. And the shareholders are investing in the interests of optimizing their returns. Yeah, which is right. an improved The biggest ticket too. item on most balance sheets or most income statements is labor. There's not a corporation in this fucking world that will sit and look seriously at the prospect of reducing their labor cost and go, no, on principle, we're not interested, thanks. Every single one of them will. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some of the people who are losing their jobs or are disenfranchised are direct or indirect stakeholders or shareholders of some or other company. Now, it's so intertwined. This is the hard lesson we're about to learn. There's no easy, simple answer. It's not like removing raisins out of cereal. This is more like moving sugar out of tea. It's, it's in the mix now. You can't, you can't suddenly get your crayon of righteousness or sanctimony out and say, here's the bright line. Um, everything else that we did in the name of progress was good, but here somebody might lose their jobs. Well, what did you think was going to happen? This is literally, the, it's written on the tin, automation. Um, and if, you've, if your job is some vestigial legacy of the industrial era, this is not an insult, if, that's just a fact. If, if the, whatever you derive income from can be done by a, an automaton, you're, you are the statistic that's going to suffer the the casualty of change. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, during that process, obviously, of automation, those people who get laid off are in a negative position. But let's forecast forward and say all jobs are automated, whether it's physical labor, whether it's well, they won't all be. But uh, let's, they let's literally can't be. But let's say a, phys uh, a philosophical question. Take let's a percentage. 95 percent of jobs. Are automated let's call it 70 percent. yeah so what what are people going to do just sit around and enjoy enjoy life and what, civil what war that's what they're going to do they're going to get fucked off there's going to be no recourse they're suddenly going to come to the limits of the system that they've been a part of and been clapping from the sidelines of and they're going to realize it doesn't suit them but too late because the engine is turning and the momentum is rolling forward you know there's an analogy I once got taught as quite a young man, and it was it always stood with me. <clears throat> if everyone's got choice, right? We've all got choice. We've got, we can make our choices, and then we we lie back in the in the marshmallow arms of this um, 
you know, belief that we've got choices. If something we don't like something, we can exercise a choice. And the example that was given to me is you go to the top of a very tall diving board and you look down and there's a blue swimming pool below you and you take the risk and you plunge. And halfway down, you realize it's actually a blue tennis court. Your window of exercising choice, which could decide the outcome, closed when you stepped off the diving board. Yes, you had choice, but you are so far around the horn now, the only way out is down. There's no, there's no other way out. And we haven't discovered that yet as a species or as individuals. And some of us are discovering that when, when you have people in war zones, they come into direct contact with these, um, these facts of survival and of compromise and of, we've all got ideas. Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a theory or a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Societies are exactly like that. And we're about to get hit in the mouth. And we think that people that don't want to say our pronouns correctly are the problem, or people that don't love Jesus enough are the problem. If we're on the far left or the far right, we all think we've got some pet crusade that's the real cause of the problem. And the nice thing is, is if a sinkhole is opening up between us and we're arguing between us across the field, the wider the sinkhole gets, proportionately, the more irrelevant our argument becomes. Because something fundamental is subsuming the, is, is, is disqualifying our um, uh, predictive model, that, that this assertion that we believe, this ideological thing that we're fucking caught up in is the, is the thing. And all it needs is a bigger storm, a bigger moment, a bigger sinkhole, a bigger calamity to arrive. And that's, unfortunately, human beings are looking for the problem, <clears throat> not realizing that human nature, unmoderated, undetected, is the problem. And... Uh, you, you, you're 100% correct. doesn't matter how you, you slice those percentages. And it might not even happen in this immediate generation because it's going to take a while for people to take these technologies and, and harness them. But greed is, is an incredibly powerful motivator. So it's not going to take long. Call it five years, 10 years. In 10 years' time, there's going to be fucking pandemonium. So if, if that's the case... And we know we're, you know, we're doomed to an extent. Should we just worry about living a good life and going on our own hero's journey and being selfish in that regard or, or not? Oh, yes and no. Because <clears throat> at the end of the day, the only way we ever get out of this collectively, first of all, it's not the only problem. There's a bunch of problems that are going to converge. Um, that's one of them. They're all going to extenuate on each other. So it's like a forest fire is coming at the same time as a tornado going off at the same time as a fucking train wreck at the same. All these things are going to all happen and slowly 
start happening at once. First of all, climate change, whatever your, you know, ideological or religious standpoint on that is, it doesn't really matter. There's a juggernaut that's been set in motion for several decades now. And that bill's going to come due and it's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. I don't care what anyone thinks about anything. It's, it's going to be uncomfortable. Several species that we count on being there are going to not be there any longer. The oceans exist and sustain the levels of fish and food and livelihood that they do and oxygen production, etc., etc., based on quite delicate balances, which we have completely fucked, which means the currents will change. If there's too much um, ice, freshwater ice from rain that starts melting, and changes the salination level of the oceans. Things change, currents change, temperatures change. Um, there's permafrost with pathogens locked in the fucking permafrost. There are um, tropical diseases that don't affect people simply because of the ambient temperature of the climate. Because mosquitoes can't live or can't affect them at these temperatures. And those things will change. There's so many little things that will change, including the amount of plastic in the ocean, plastic inside the fish that we're eating, how that's going to make us ill in various different ways, the heavy metals in the ocean. Take your pick. And it's not just the ecological stuff. It's the economic shitstorm that's coming. It's the unaffordability of housing and living. It's the ineptitude of education. All of this... We are, we are riding on the, the fumes of the momentum that we generated in our times of plenty and our innovation and our discovery and all the rest of it. But all of these systems that we have to manage humanity and organize amongst ourselves, these are so outdated and the outdatedness is going to become due. You know, Sometimes a house or a city will have a one in 20 year storm. And for the other 19 years, everything's fine. But then one year, the window panes are not sufficient to keep the cold out. And the roofs are not built for that amount of snow. And the roads and the drainage is not built for that amount of rain. Whatever you want. The reason that Cambodia's um, ancient empires fell to ruin, Angkor Wat, the Khmer in Cambodia was not because they were not a powerful empire. It was because from a climatological point of view, they were engaging with drought and then flood and then drought and then flood. So during times of drought, they rejigged all the engineering to make sure water could flow optimally from the sources towards the city. And then as soon as there was a flood, they were completely fucking inundated. And who would have thought? Nobody would have thought. But the point is, all of our bugs in our software are hiding where we least expect them. And we're not expecting system A to interfere with system B or scenario B to interfere with paradigm C and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And then we've got bad faith actors and we've got China and Russia fucking about and we've got nuclear proliferation. So the amount of things that we're stacking against ourselves, pretty serious. And all we need is a few of them to happen at the same time. Yeah, we're definitely heading towards the precipice, aren't we? Definitely heading towards that. And so um, 
your your question to me was so in in the face of that what first of all, i wanted to paint a bigger picture of of a potential crisis which is pretty serious and the second thing is it's not trivial or political whatever's going to come doesn't give a fuck about what color tie your favorite guy has it just doesn't care it's just so meaningless so utterly meaningless and so then the question is and i get asked this so many times logically when a problem is so much bigger than you What's the utility of worrying? Why don't you just stoic the fuck out of it and go, this is bigger than me. I'm just going to not worry. Yeah, that's okay. Sure. That's fine. But are you telling me that one day as you go out, the satisfaction you're going to hold in your heart is it was bigger than me, so I didn't bother trying. Okay. That's fine. Some of us are trying to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And by the same token, not every single person is wired to be a champion or a leader or a life changer. But we are uniquely all created to be able to at least manage our own shit. And if every single person woke up tomorrow morning, you know, there's a paradigm I spoke about earlier today. It was these people in Israel that are growing um, lab meat. So it's artificially grown burgers and steaks and things, right? And somebody came at them with the, the typical vegan argument. And the guy said, listen here, man, even if 100 people on your street suddenly went vegan tomorrow, perfectly vegan, never did a fucking thing wrong, never ate anything out of a chicken's asshole again, you wouldn't make a dent in the problem. You wouldn't even make a dent in the problem. He said, we do not need a thousand sanctimonious people, a hundred thousand sanctimonious people doing everything perfectly. We need a billion people doing something 5% incrementally better than what they did yesterday. That is what's going to make the change. Now, that is exactly the level of thinking that we need to apply. Nobody needs to be Marcus Aurelius or Gandhi. Those people come, they're one in a million. They're one in a billion. Let them be one in a billion. Don't you worry about that. But don't tell me that you can do nothing. And the very least you can do is start becoming aware of your own project, your own self, your own purview, your own remit. How can I unfuck myself, at least? Because if every single person actually was invested in that project, we wouldn't have much of a problem after very long. What are the practical and, ways then people can be master of their own ship, as you, as you said? You know, we all deal with, and I think we started speaking about this last time, we're all dealing with generational trauma. That's just a fact. Humanity have been shitheads to each other since the dawn of fucking time. Because we have animal psychologies, fundamentally, and animal evolutionary biology. It's not because we're ourselves, it's because we were, we, we're lifting ourselves up by our bootstraps. And we have better natures and worse natures. And your better nature doesn't come online by itself. You have to lean that way. And it's not comfortable always to lean that way because everything in you is screaming the opposite. But somebody has to hold the screaming while you lean the better way. When you're dieting, when you're trying to get around your religious programming, when you're trying to get around your political ideological programming, there's discomfort because as you as you straighten up and fly right, you don't have the support of consensus of your in-group and your, your support base with you. 
you kind of go into a no man's land before you've developed your own conviction and your own sense of self. And you're also in this desert where you don't have the mass screaming consensus supporting you up. You're walking across like a kind of very narrow bridge towards this person that you may yet one day become. And that whole project is very challenging. It's very difficult. It's the project of a lifetime. And any form or way in which you can face discomfort in the service of becoming a better version of yourself is the work that you can do. And a lot of that is under the umbrella of facing generational trauma. Looking inside of yourself to that place that you do not want to look. Challenging the stories that you hold on to. The way that you speak to people. The way that you, you classify people as us and them. The injuries that you feel. The injustices that you feel. We're all sitting with four kind of personas inside of our psychology. There's the animal. There's the child. There's the protector and the judge. The protector wants to keep us safe. The judge wants to make sure everything's fair and equitable. The animal wants its needs met and the child wants to be seen and wants to be free. And in the case of neglect or injury or injustice, the shadow aspect of those four emerge. The child becomes the wounded child. We all have inner child problems. The animal becomes the beast. The beast is its language is excess and addiction and violence and aggression. The protector becomes the critic, which is interested in finding who and what was the problem and to blame, pointing fingers, um, perfection, correction, overbearing nature. And the judge becomes the victim, always looking for whose responsibility and fault it was. Now, we live in a society captured by the shadow expression of those four personas. And so, first of all, realizing that those four voices are ever-present. So if somebody, for example, is controlling or a perfectionist or blames themselves, it automatically means that they are living in a psychological state where their protector has slipped into critic mode and they're pointing the finger of blame at themselves. And fundamentally, they're dealing with a wound or a level of neglect which they can't process and they don't know where to put it. If somebody's in victim entitled mode where they're looking for someone to blame and nothing's ever their fault, they've slid into the shadow expression of the judge. They've experienced unfairness and they don't know how to reconcile that or manage that in the world and they feel disempowered. Similarly, if somebody has addictions, deal with aggression, um, don't know how to speak about or process their emotions, they're caught in the shadow expression of the animal. And if their experience is of attention-seeking, of tantrums, of fantasy, of shame, then they're in the shadow expression of the child, which is the wounded child. Very easy to diagnose where we're at. And if you have any four of those problems, you've got work to do. But according to, I think Nietzsche was was it all, I know Robert Greene talks about this as well, the implementation of the shadow self, is that essentially what you're referring to or is this a completely separate issue? No, no, it's completely that. So um, all of those wounded aspects of self to shine a light and figure out what the actual problem is, what the need is, what the loving heart of need and vulnerability is at the bottom of all these things. And then to do that reconciliation yourself without outsourcing the problem onto a redeemer, 
or a scapegoat or an ideology or a just self-reconciliation, the figuring out of self and how you got here and the working out of the chain of causality that led you here. And then as soon as we try hand the baton of blame onto our parents, we realize that they the function or the outcome or the product of their upbringing and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on, and so on all the way back. And when that dawns on you, you suddenly realize that there's no one to pass the baton of blame to. All that we've been waiting for is human beings to stand up and go, it doesn't matter who caused this. I'm going to be responsible for resolving my bit, just my bit. And maybe when I've resolved my bit, I can lean out and start helping others. So and we can start doing. So go on. No, no, but you, you know where I was going with that. So what do we need to do mentally to start that process? And would you class that as a, an inner hero's journey to an extent? It can be, because um, sometimes those challenges that you have to face can have a, the, 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 the shape of a hero's journey. Um, there is a very simple practice that I advocate. It's called one voice at a time. It's basically a journaling practice. And the point is, if you're unhappy or disenfranchised or uncomfortable, anxious, neurotic, depressed, whatever it is, it means you haven't done the work. And one of those four voices or many of them will be talking over each other at the time. And as they talk over each other, nothing gets concluded and you end up recursively going over the same kind of patterns of thought or self beration or whatever the thing is. And the practice one voice at a time literally is one voice at a time. You identify the loudest, most injured of those four voices and you start journaling the thought stream of it just from a conscious witness perspective, a holding perspective. And your job is twofold. Your job is to let it speak however it wants and also to make sure that the other voices don't intrude, not now. So you become a fair arbitrator. Every voice gets a turn. And eventually what you'll notice is it'll either be heavy protector or heavy critic. Uh, sorry, heavy critic or heavy victim. But it'll always, always point back to the child. Even if, and the animal is hard to journal because the animal, the beast, doesn't have language. Its language is excess and violence and impulsiveness. You just have to realize that you have needs that you're neglecting and often you're neglecting those needs because of shame. And often the reason you're doing that is because you're operating from some sort of cultural moral framework that is completely outdated and doesn't make contact with your actual needs. And so we're either puritanical or we've got these traditionalist worldviews about honor or decency or respect and they're out of touch with who we are as human beings. What's I don't know if I explain that thoroughly, but the point is it's a, it's a, it's an exercise people can do to, to um, figure out um, where the, the biggest wounds are and start literally processing those literally like a computer program. You're processing the bugs. In. Where do you think these voices come from? They're just inherent. They're inherent. I mean, we've got two major vectors that we subscribe to is love or fear. And, you know, nature, the default 
It's fear. It's not because anything's wrong. It's because that's how you get organic um, creatures to value life and self-preservation. You bake it into the DNA. And so they seek pleasure, they avoid pain, and they try to conserve energy. And eventually, as consciousness emerges above a certain waterline of sentience, then mythos emerges, our ability to abstract into archetype and mother, father, God, you know, beings. So we start creating superstitions, and we can add language to this, but some nonverbal approximation, some simplified approximation of that exists with wolves and dolphins and chimpanzees, which is how they form their hierarchical structures. But when it comes to us, ours becomes more nuanced. And as we're children, as we arrive in this world, and as we start experiencing suffering and grief, and we start encountering these very, very, very raw, very foundational, very fundamental concepts, which, which Jung referred to as archetypes, which are justice, law, love, the king, these very basic ideas of where law should come from, what's right and wrong, what we deserve, what we need, what we... And we're vulnerable in this world, and the only thing that we have to protect us is the law, Think how the world ought to work. And human history is a, a uh, tragic showcase of, yeah, of us doing just heinous things to learn very painfully and very slowly um, what we oughtn't to do. But the cost of that is just a lot of the attrition is, is, is paid out in human, in human suffering. And so we all have these shared archetypes. Joseph Campbell talked about that. Jung talked about that. It, it doesn't matter whose camp you think got the language the most right. The most important thing is realizing that there's a commonality about what they're talking about, and we all have a shared experience about that. Now, you get religious pandits and, um, and, and you know, peddlers of ideology that come along, even well-meaning, and they sit and attach a complex, organized mythos, which we call our religions. And we've all got these skewed interpretations of what we think it should be called or what we think it should be named or how we think this information should be organized. And the only reason that sticks and works is because we're co-opting lower fundamental code in our operating system that kind of came along for the ride. And where does it come from? It comes, it's innate in the human experience. So we just need to accept that nature and, and what we're like. Exactly right. Exactly right. In fact, when you start accepting the fact that you didn't engineer this fucking cock up that you arrive with, your job is just to try and debug it as best you can and make peace with it. The quicker that you can put down the drama of what's going on and whose fault it is and how much you can and can't control, you're far better off spending your energy on, on, on artfully and skillfully determining where the limit of your control and capability is and exercising your energy where you can and accepting where you can't. And that is how we process guilt and shame. Because we have the sexual impulses we have, we have the appetites we have, we, we are who we are, we have the aggression we have. All we can do is moderate them, but we certainly can't make it as if they don't exist. And that's the mistake of our traditionalist religions, is they try to add a puritanical layer of self-control. Um, 
which is a survival mechanism for, for, for large societies. But at the end of the day, they're very antiquated operating systems and they are woefully inept at helping us navigate this moment together as a very, very large species. So is religion more like a purple pill and red pill is accepting our nature and and blue pill would be um, we are all inherently good and perfect by nature? Yeah, we, we think we can become good, but we have to exceed or transcend our lower natures. And so I don't know if it neatly lends itself. You see, at the end of the day, the blue pill, red pill thing is a, is, is the matrix is a Gnostic narrative. So you, you're talking about Gnosticism here, but fundamentally there is a red pill aspect to it. You do have to wake up to the reality of what is, and the reality isn't pretty, not all of it until we make it so. Um, but religion is, yeah, it's, it's religion can actually be a kind of blue pill because it sells you a fucking story that is part of mythos. It's a, it's a, it's a fiction at the end of the day. It's a fiction sprinkled with a bit of the truth. And if you really want to sell a fiction, you season it with some of the truth. And I don't know, I can't stand here honestly and say that every single religion or religious ideology was always a um, deceitful bullshit story to begin with. I don't think that will start like that. But I think given human nature, they invariably become like that because the nature of humans is to lean towards control. And when you create the levers and mechanisms of social control to save people from themselves, sooner or later, the shit fucker will come along and go, oh, I know what to do here. Um, you know, there's, there's whole Instagram or Twitter um, channels that are they, they deify Niccolo Machiavelli. They think this, this is the way to think. This is the way to think of men. This is the way to think of women. This is the way to think of societies. And there is a way to engineer for power. There is. But it's very, very, very bankrupt of moral wisdom. And I think all religion goes that way at the end of the day. It's, it's inevitable. And the reason it's inevitable is because its form of control is predicated on absolute adherence. Its efficacy is, is, is presupposes absolute adherence. And people are not very evolved or nuanced. So what they do is they figure out that, well, you can't mix these kinds of foods together, otherwise you're going to get sick and you can't be fucking each other's wives and stealing each other's stuff. So let's have these moral commandments or these, these, this framework of ethics, which eventually get distilled into much more complex frameworks called law, like uh, human law. And this is a way to keep people cohesive and not fucking each other up, and it becomes a shared narrative, which is fine. The problem is as soon as you lock it down and you carve those commandments into stone or you say, thou shalt always do this, you get Hindu pandits that do this. They, they know the exact 
sequence and um, mumbo jumbo that you have to do and say and burn and throw at the figurines when you're doing ceremonies. And it's all fine. Those are all wonderful things. And in context, 1500 years ago, they would have made a lot more sense. But as we evolve and as our time evolves and as our context keeps changing, these things just recede slowly into um, a kind of redundancy, a meaninglessness. And if we were smart about it, we'd go, let's moderate this, let's fix it, let's update it, let's keep it fresh, like an operating system or a piece of software or your Apple iPhone. And then imagine there was some dogmatic controller. So no, 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 we just, we, we keep the same. We never change it you, because it says here in the code that thou shalt never change this. And it always has to look the same. And when I was young, this is what we used to do. And this is human nature. We think that by locking something down and carving it in stone, we're preserving it because our trope, our psychological idea of preserving something, that's what that meant. And now we're learning that if a system or a philosophy can't be adapted and moderated for change, it becomes redundant very quickly. And now what do you get? You get professors in academia, you get teachers in schools, you get you get ministers and parliamentarians, etc. that as the world demands change around them, their entire livelihood, their, their relevance, how they get validated in the world, their forms of power and control are completely predicated on the existence of these old redundant systems. So they're going to keep the systems alive. And as people try to come up through the ranks as new teachers and new professors and new academics and new politicians, they want to belong to this fraternity or this group or this hierarchy that they're trying to make headway in. And the rules of the hierarchy that they're trying to climb are such that they start buying into the dogma of this hierarchical structure. And so without realizing it in their attempt to climb and get a rung up, if you've spent the last seven years of your life getting to rung five of 10, and someone comes along and says, I think the whole rung system's fucked. Are you going to be the first one to check in your seven years of effort and go, okay, well, it's all good then. I'm fine. No, you fight like tooth and nail to preserve it. And that's in human nature. And so we don't realize what we're doing to ourselves. Yeah. Is that a, a difference? Because I heard Alan Watt say something along the lines of Western religion is acquiescence to rules, whereas Eastern religions are more about the sense of being. Would you is that is that what you're saying as well in terms of acquiescing to these rules? Pretty and much enforcing pretty much the um, nostalgia except, of the old way. Pretty much, except for all of its um, sense of being, our Eastern religions have fundamentally all fallen the same way. Do you see anybody moderating Buddhism now or Hinduism? No, you don't. They're not moderating it. So we need something fresh. We need something new. We need a paradigm shift. We need, we need a, we need to think in terms of how we operate in the world. And the way we operate in the world is via software, operating systems, projects. And if whatever comes along doesn't speak into that mindset, it's not going to work. How does Spotify keep relevant? Do you think they've got commandments? No. 
I think they've got principles that they stick to and they keep pace through iteration and variation. They've got different squads specializing in different things and they keep releasing new stuff and they allow for bugs and they solve them as they go along. They don't have a separate magic test environment. They're improving as they go, keeping pace with the need. But in some, in some respects, we need to think of our ideologies and our philosophies in exactly the same way. In yeah. some ways, principles, as you said, with Spotify can be something that transcends time. Obviously, you spoke about the Hermetics last time. They're a set of principles that... Yeah. So what the, what the, the short version of everything we've been saying is fall out of love with systems and fall in love with philosophy. Because philosophy is amenable to change, whereas systems fail when their inputs exceed their throughput and systems get designed to last. They don't get designed to change. Right. A lot of our shit's going get, to go, go south because it's all designed to last and time is moving on too quickly. Our paradigm's shifting too fast. We've, anyway, we've, I've got a hard stop in about... Um, Six minutes, young man. Yeah, no, that's fine. I was just about to ask. Obviously, we've been through a lot today. Is there anything that you felt we've we've sort of brushed over or there's a gap in everything we've spoken about just to, to sort of sum everything up for, for the uh, I mean, we've we've waffled a lot today, you and I. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything specifically, but if, obviously if anybody wants to get more, um, they know where to find me. And right now, my calendar is completely open up. So if anybody wants to do any work with me, I'll cover any of this stuff. Um, I'm, my calendar is wide open. About the podcast? Oh, no, no, actually like one-on-one -on -one work or... No, I meant uh, you said wide open. I said like eyes wide open to the podcast. Isn't eyes it? wide open life. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. That's it. Um, but yeah, I suppose the question is back to you. Is there anything that you feel we, we rushed over or? No, I think for, for me, I think it was a case of just trying to ask some deep questions and seeing where the conversation went, which I think yeah. worked, worked well. Um, as I said, you're an interesting, interesting man. You got some, uh, uh, very esoteric knowledge and I think you put it together in a way that is quite coherent for especially for quite complex subjects yeah yeah um yeah thanks for that because i spend a lot of effort um making that the case the, the 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 trick is it doesn't matter how coherent i am if we can't get enough people compelled by this sort of signal um it's it's it, it ain't gonna matter that's true okay sometimes I've got imagine yeah, go for it. it. I don't know whether you can answer this in like a minute summary or not. Do you believe in free will or are you deterministic or do you believe there's a balance? So I think the, this is the problem. Often when we look at a question like this, we want to extrude an answer out that lends itself to or conforms to a binary, yes or a no. And with free will, it doesn't, that's the wrong question to ask. So the question is, is there free will at all? Yes. Is there a degree of determinism to the universe? Yes. How can those two coexist at the same time? Well, very simply, actually. So if you consider mathematics, 
physics. You know, if you get a thousand plastic balls and you throw them in the top of a tumbler that's got those splitters into numbers, they always tend to spill out in kind of mathematical averages. Doesn't matter how many times you run the experiment, there's always going to be some distribution. That fundamental distribution is written into the physics of the place that we occupy. And this is what determines the shape of river deltas, the arteries of blue whale, the road structures of human beings, the fractal distribution of filaments of a lightning bolt. That just is. And when you pour a thousand plastic balls down this, or if you run a river across a piece of open ground, or you do anything to anything, the way that movement interacts with what is static in this world, be it electrons or water molecules or people in a just whatever it is, they're always going to succumb to the overriding signal of the organizing principle that pervades and, and permutates and permutes everything. And through that, there is a determinate sense of, de of predetermination, but it's not that every single outcome cannot be swayed against or choice can't be made against it. It means in the absence of conscious, deliberate application of will, the default is always going to default to this. And whatever you think you're doing to override that, bear in mind there's a billion billion to the power of several hundred moving parts that are unaware of your machinations and all subscribing to this mathematics and physics of the, of the universe. Now, that does not mean that we do not get the capacity to exercise free will. Yeah, because Sam Harris believes that we don't have free will, whereas I push back and say... And I understand his argument to a point. I do as well, but... And what he's saying is if the self is an illusion, free will is an illusion. But what he now, said is that... This... So, go on. Well, carry on. And I was just going to say, he he was saying something along the lines of because our thoughts happen before we make a decision, we have no free That's will. That's right. But I, I would right. say, okay, well, well, if we feed ourselves consciously information, first of all, and secondly, it's like I use the example of uh, someone who's a heroin addict. They weren't determined to become a heroin addict. They were offered two choices. You know, should I take drugs or no? They've decided to take drugs. They've then decided wasn't, to go wasn't to the cafeteria. that simple either. And, you know, so they've made the decision yeah. to continue to do that. That is, a, that is a very shallow order of... Um, complexity at which to try and answer this question. And all of those paradigms that we're talking about now are um, cartoonishly simplistic to make qualifications on whether free will exists or not. And all you're talking about there is um, there was a guy called Jonathan Haidt, I think was his name. Pretty sure that was the guy I'm talking about. No, no, no. It was, I can't remember his name. I cannot remember this guy's name, but he did a, a, a lecture series on how choices are made in the human brain. And they are, they are certainly not simplistic binaries. They are definitely not. They are complex 
weighted um, heuristics that are based partially on the qualia that are arriving in the moment and to a huge degree based on a number of factors which are so complex we can't even trace them. And a very simple example is he's the kind of guy that doesn't eat um, candy bars from a petrol station or gas station. And yet on this one day, he found himself driving up there, buying a candy bar and eating it. What made him do that? What made him do that was the quality of his sleep, the low blood sugar that he had, the suggestibility, the, the distraction that he had because of the problem that he was dealing with, whatever was framed and primed in his mind because of the billboards that he signed as he drove up there. And so from that perspective, this runs right into Sam Harris's camp to say, all we are are these enormous collections of switches and levers, like these complex pinball machines. And millions of these little deciders are being swayed one way or another that has got fuck all to do with your illusion of free will. Even when you think there is a blue ball and a red ball, I'm going to choose which one to pick up. Even if you pick up the red one, you cannot actually intelligently or accurately articulate what made you choose the red one because you didn't actually choose it. A choice arrived, which you retconned afterwards as yours. Now, this stems right back down to the illusion of self. That doesn't mean the person that you are is an illusion. It means your sense of self, the cohesive sense of self that you imagine you are, is largely illusory. But that doesn't mean that, again, it's binary, that it either exists or it doesn't. It means the nature, as we spoke about a minute ago, this multiplicity of who we are internally. That I arrange neatly into four persona. There's a million ways of slicing that problem. And the one way was conveniently into four. That's not the only answer. When you look at a, at, a, at a rainbow of colors, you see seven colors. But strictly speaking, the gap between the yellow and the orange is actually infinitely small degrees of variant color changes on a gradient. So you could split this up a million, million different ways. And exactly the same way, a human being, the part that you think is making all these big decisions, just below the waterline, if we were an iceberg, the very tip of the iceberg that the seagull shat on is the bit that you're aware of. But from that point on down, far below the waterline and below it, and all the currents that are moving it, and all of the molecules of salt and whatever that makes up that giant iceberg, you have absolutely zero awareness of the movement, the mechanics, the heuristics, the anything. You're just blindly unaware of it. And so a large part of what we attribute as free will is just this anthropomorphized fiction about control that doesn't exist over an experience that we are retconning in hindsight after it's already happened. Now, do I believe free will exists? Yes. But these tiny, 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 tiny incremental slivers of awareness or consciousness that we can marshal, that we can consider truly what the consequences of things are. And knowing what the consequences, the relationship between cause and effect are, and evaluating them and overriding our default natures and deciding something other 
in those small margins of experience and choice, I believe a quality of free will exists. But it's not a binary existence. It's a degree that we can exercise. And ironically, back to hermetics, the project of hermetics is the development of will so that you can understand the relationship of things more and the storm that blows inside of you to a more clinical degree so that you can see the actual choices that are presented so that this little tiny will, this fledgling firefly of a self that actually does exist, you can actually undress and fan into flame and then imbue this thing with will. And one of the ways you can begin to understand this is you can't choose what you want, but you can choose what you would want to want. If I give you two kinds of naked woman, you'll be attracted to the one and not the other. If I give you two kinds of meals, you'll feel like the one and not like the other. You couldn't choose that. But you can choose what you want to choose. And so you set a routine for yourself. You craft the kind of life that you want that's going to yield the kind of person that you might want to be, even if you don't feel like that person now. And a routine is not a habit. It's the habit of creating habits or shaping habits. And we are what we repeatedly choose to do and who we repeatedly choose to be. And we can defy our natures in the cause of a goal that aligns with us. And we can eventually develop some will and counter our own natures. But Sam Harris would argue, and intellectually accurately to a point, that whatever it is that's motivating you to craft that future life that you think is more benevolent or nobler or wiser, you also didn't fucking choose. That inclination was also just baked into you. And there begins the mystery. On that note, <laughs> that's uh, lovely. Uh, yeah. So now you've got to go now. So on that note, we'll call it a day. Um, and thanks thank you very for, much for coming on the show again. Again, been a pleasure. You're very, very welcome. I hope the recording audio is better this time. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> we'll find out soon enough. Thanks again.